the lesson today, the message for today is not um, going to be your favorite one. Because um, we're, we're, and I, I mean, I'm not going to reveal anything that's not going to be revealed, but it's blessed are you who are persecuted. And none of us, nobody woke up this Sunday morning thinking, man, I just really, I'm in the mood to be persecuted. I, I did not wake up in that mood. Um, but I certainly have felt like I've been persecuted before. I don't know about you guys. Um, I have felt like it, and uh, some of it was justified, and some of it I brought on myself, didn't I? Um, but, uh, but that is our message today, and I, I don't think any of us really want, um, you know, like I said, I don't think anybody woke up saying, bring on the persecution. Um, but the truth of the matter is that those who would live righteously for God have always been persecuted by those who would not. And from the beginning of history, it has been so. Um, Abel. The righteous son of Adam and Eve, Abel, gave a worthy sacrifice to the Lord, and it pleased the Lord. But worldly Cain, Cain the other guy, remember, he made an unworthy sacrifice, and it wasn't accepted. And as a result, Cain, in his jealous rage, he killed his brother. And so Abel suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. The third person on the planet, basically, suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer this morning, but why should any of us think that we're going to have it easier than the other people in the Bible and the other people through history who have faced persecution? Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, all of the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, and all of the apostles. Peter, James, and John just didn't go fishing. They were also persecuted. And this roll call of biblical characters, is, it's a non-exclusive list because there's more people, far more people in the history of Christianity and the history of faith who were persecuted for his name's sake. It seems that righteousness is a magnet for persecution. And I imagine some of you might be thinking, well, I'll just mosey on out. You don't have to tell me anymore. If we're, if we're being persecuted, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll just let y'all have this thing. But let me explain to you, because there's a blessing that comes with persecution. And in fact, we're, we're, we're told that we're, there's going to be persecution, but there is also going to be a blessing with it. And the persecution against the righteous, it didn't stop with the death of the disciples. It has continued from the apostolic times until this present day, with many still losing their lives because of their love for the Lord. Why is this? And how could Jesus say what he says in the text that we have for today that you will be blessed in persecution. I truly hope that by the time we finish this morning, you will see that there is a blessing in persecution. Our text, we all know we've been on Matthew 5 for months now. Uh, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that the whole thrust of everything that we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount was to explain the true nature of righteousness. The true nature of righteousness would always, 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 always be in opposition to the world and the world system. God's righteousness and the world are always going to be in opposition. And the true righteousness is going to be a kingdom of righteousness that the Lord is establishing on this earth. And it's going to be greater than the righteousness that was shown by the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees, remember, they they followed every law. 
they dotted every I, they crossed every T, but Jesus said true righteousness is going to exceed what you do on the outside. It's found somewhere else. Really what we saw in the, in the, in the scribes and the Pharisees was self-righteousness, wasn't it? They, they found this list of laws and list of rules and they said, I will do these things and it really doesn't matter what goes on in my heart. I'll be righteous because I'm doing this list. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with those series of statements that we've been studying, which we call the Beatitudes. And he said these would be characteristics of those who already have righteousness working in them. And we have seen from our study up to this point, these are not characteristics that anyone can work up in themselves. None of you can do the things that are in the Beatitudes by yourself. No, none of us can. None of us can become righteous on our own. But these things in the Beatitudes, they are marks that demonstrate that a person is allowing the Holy Spirit to work in them and produce righteousness in them. Keep always that in mind. And in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus concludes what we would call the Beatitudes. You know, if somebody says, what are the Beatitudes? Can you memorize them and name them? Jesus concludes the Beatitudes with this statement about the blessings. He said, blessed, and we read it, blessed are they which are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he continues, and it's not another beatitude, it's actually the same thing, just stated a slightly different way. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice when you are persecuted. We got a lot to talk about because you're still, nobody's agreeing with me yet. You're, you're still thinking, I do not want to be persecuted. These aren't two beatitudes, like I said. They're really just one explained twice. But it is also the only beatitude of all the ones that we've gone through that is not really positive. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, you read this one and you're like, I just don't know if I want that one. The other seven are great. <laughs> Let's do those seven and, and leave this one out, but we can't. Remember, it's a sequence. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it flows. We, do, we go from one to two to three to four to five to six to seven to eight. We do them all. They kind of go together. You can't take out one and, and do the rest or take out a couple and do the rest. You, it doesn't work that way. This, this beatitude is not positive, but it is a statement telling us what will result from living righteously. And it's also a statement of the blessing that's going to come. And it is by far the most difficult of the Beatitudes, both to understand and to live out. I'm not going to argue that it's not. I think this one's the hardest for our brains to comprehend. And it's also the hardest for us to put into practice. Because, and I'll tell you why, more than all of the others, this one draws the line in the sand. This one divides those who are truly righteous and those who are not. It shows the difference between those who are truly Christians and who are saved and those that feign Christianity, but they are not actually converted. I think we see that in this beatitude. There are many that claim that they are persecuted, but they are mistaken. Many believe they are being persecuted because they are righteous, when in reality they're only getting consequences of their actions. If we were being blunt, we might call this persecution that is being deserved. If I've done something wrong and I'm being persecuted for it, I'm not being persecuted for righteousness sake, am I? In 1 Peter, 
uh, Peter addressed this, this specifically. He was preparing those early believers throughout Asia Minor, all those places he went on his missionary trips. He was preparing them to experience persecution. And he says some interesting things about making sure they're ready for this. In 1 Peter 2 and 12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, what he's telling them is make sure that when they speak evil against you, they're justified. Or not justified, I guess, depending on your point of view. If we are not living righteous and they slander us, then they're right. If I'm living righteous and they slander me, then that's persecution. If I'm not living righteous and I'm being talked about, I'm not being persecuted. It's, it's a, there's a distinction here, and, and it's very crucial for someone who wants to live in righteousness. And Peter adds in verse 20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Oh, you, you've sinned and now you're being persecuted and you've done it with, you're, you're enduring it with patience? There's no reward in that. That's a consequence. That's a consequence of what we do. But if when you do what is right and you suffer and you patiently endure it, you find favor with God. That's how he finishes that verse. Interesting, inter I never thought about it this way, really. Never kind of, I mean, persecution is all the same to me, but it's not. It's not all the same. If you sin and are harshly treated, you've only received what you deserve. We don't like this, but we can understand it, right? It, it's, it makes a little sense. Here's a great example. I drove drunk. I got a DWI. I was put in jail. I lost my job. No one was persecuting me for righteousness sake. That was not happening to me. I would love to think it was, but I was not being persecuted for righteousness sake. I was being persecuted for my bad decisions. For the mistakes I had made, for the crimes I had committed, I was being persecuted and I was suffering because of my own mistakes. I didn't like it, I didn't want it, but it was my fault. It was deserved. Consequences are not persecution. Peter goes on to say in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing it for what is wrong. You gain nothing in your suffering because you have done wrong things to get there. Drop down to, to 4 and 12. Also, we're still in First Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. If you're sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, so if you commit murder, you're not suffering. But if you suffer as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but it is in that name, let him glorify God. Too often people want to look at their suffering as a mark of their spirituality, when in reality the persecution they are undergoing is deserved because of their own sinfulness. When I was in jail, I was not a prisoner for Christ's sake at the Rapids Parish Jail. Let me give you some more concrete examples. There are those out there that are telling others about Jesus Christ that are persecuted, not because of the message they bring, but because they are obnoxious. 
not trying to step on toes or meddle in anybody's business, but some of us are obnoxious when we tell the, the gospel. And this includes when the words about Jesus coming out of our mouths don't match the actions of our lives. Examine all the scriptures and show me where God commends someone for being obnoxious in telling the gospel. The only offense that we are ever to bring to the world is Jesus Christ himself. You understand why he's an offense? That offense is the condemnation that when we come into contact with Jesus Christ, we go back to, to the verse, the very first beatitude. We realize how poor in spirit. We realize that we have to mourn over our sin. That's the only offense we are ever to bring to the world. But if we become offensive ourselves in sharing the gospel, then we are obstructing the message of love. This kind of offense is done by all sorts of people. It's sometimes just well-meaning people who just lack the, I hate to say it this way, but just lack the proper good manners. It's also people who are self-righteous and have a holier-than-thou attitude. Thank God we don't have that spirit in this church. It's also to those who just assault people with the gospel rather than share it. The gospel is not a hammer that we should use to try to control our friends and our family. There are also those who have gone beyond being fools for Christ's sake to being freaks. Some people want to show off their devotion to God so badly that they end up bringing derision and shame to the name of God. We, we had a couple back when I went to POA, there was a couple that would drive around in a, in a flatbed truck and she would play a guitar and sing. And, and they looked like they were hippies, basically, flower children. But they would, they would, and then they would get somewhere and they would stop and then he would start preaching and telling everybody that they were going to hell. And then at the very end they would say, and we go to POA. They wanted to be persecuted. They were doing things that would lead to persecution, but it was not for righteousness sake that they were being persecuted and they ended up making the rest of the church look bad. They hindered the salvation message by doing what they were doing. This is an extreme example, but you can understand they made the rest of the church look like a bunch of crazies. Who's going to go to that church? They hindered that message. There are also those that are persecuted for a cause rather than for righteousness. Even Christians have to be very careful lest we get swept up in politics, right? We got to be careful. We serve Jesus Christ. We don't serve a political party. Our politics and our faith are not supposed to be the same. And that's a fine distinction sometimes, but it must be made. There is never a justification. Listen to this. This, this convicted me this week. There is never a justification for being rude to those whom Christ has died for just because I find their politics distasteful. That convicted me. Oh, that convicted me this week. I have been very guilty of people who disagree with my politics just dismissing them completely. But they are children of God too. I can't just dismiss those people. I can't treat them with derision and scorn just because I disagree with their politics. Sometimes they're even persecuting me because of my politics and I can't treat them that way. I have to turn the other cheek like Jesus said for us to do. Remember the blessing that Jesus is talking about here is only that suffering for righteousness sake. It's not suffering for your political cause. And so what then does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness sake? So what is persecution that is undeserved? 
First of all, let's look at the nature of righteousness. We've been talking about it a lot, so let's talk about it some more. The nature of righteousness is that it provokes the unrighteous. It doesn't jive with them. Righteousness and unrighteousness, they're oil and water. They're just never going to mix. And it always comes at the hands of those who are not living according to God's standards. That's the unrighteous. But take warning here. Christians have, so-called Christians, have persecuted other Christians over time and throughout history. It's happened through, from the very beginning of time with, with, from Christianity. And that should come as no surprise to us. Because much of what goes on in the name of Christianity is really no different than what, the, what Judaism had degenerated into in the time of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had exchanged the law of God for their own system of beliefs and rules and regulations that they could manipulate. And so much of Christianity today in our own time has exchanged the gospel of Jesus Christ for its own set of rules and regulations. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this. It's that man is sinful and under the wrath of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And because he did that, he gave his spotless lamb, his sinless life, Jesus Christ. And he died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He was our substitute. And he rose from the grave on the third day. He showed that he had power over death, hell, and the grave. He claimed, to be he claimed to be God and he proved it when he rose from the dead. And he offers eternal life to everyone who will put their trust in him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. But some Christians have exchanged this gospel for a system of religious works and or traditions by which we can earn our way into heaven or do these things and get to heaven. And I'm not picking on Pentecostals when I say this because all denominations have done this. We have exchanged the true gospel for man's version of it. If, this, if it was the Jewish religious leaders that led the persecution against Jesus and had him crucified, then the Christian church has done the same thing to many Christians. The church has followed that path. The dark ages were called dark because Christians were persecuted. The truth of the gospel was suppressed by man-made religion. There's a man named John Wycliffe and William Tyndall. You may not have heard their names, but we owe the fact that we can read a Bible in the English language to those two men. They were condemned as heretics by Rome. Tyndall was martyred. He was burned at the stake. Wycliffe, this is how much they hated John Wycliffe. He had already died of natural causes. They dug up his body and burned the bones and threw it in the ocean. That's how much they couldn't stand John Wycliffe. But John Wycliffe and William Tyndall, we read a Bible in English because of those two men. They cared so much to translate it into a language that the people of their country could understand. Can you imagine digging up a man? You hate a man so much you dig him up to burn his bones? There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it gives account after account of those who were burned at the stake because they would not submit to the religious authority of the days. They would not deny that salvation comes by grace through faith. And the underground church today, even in China and Russia, is being persecuted, ruthlessly suppressed. People are being sent to, to work camps. They're being sent to exterminate. Not necessarily, I don't know if they've gone that far, but, but we're not far from that. That is persecution. And we are called to the same righteousness, that same righteousness that causes people all over this globe today to be persecuted. True righteousness is becoming like Jesus Christ in our character. 
And Jesus says that the blessing comes to those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness on account of him. In being truly righteous, when we become truly righteous, we become a reflection of Jesus Christ to those around us. The more we do that, the more righteous we are living. And the more an unrighteous world cannot stand what we are. Jesus said in John, in John 15, 18, and 21, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that scripture? That's Jesus' words. The more we are like Jesus, the more the world is going to hate us because it hates him. And it hated him first. To live for Christ is to live in opposition to the devil and this world system. To live for Christ is to be confrontational by our very existence. Existing as a Christian confronts the world's sin. If I am living as a reflection of Jesus Christ, then people around me, they're going to be confronted with their own sin just by being in my presence. I don't even have to be obnoxious. I don't even have to start being self-righteous. It's just me. It's me being reflection of Jesus Christ. It's going to offend their sensibilities because they'll see in them the shortcomings that they have to holiness and righteousness. You do not even have to say a word and you will provoke the unrighteous because you're not like them. The world loves it its own, but it hates those that are not like it. Paul said it plainly to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, and indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we live godly and righteous lives, we will be persecuted. It may not be like what's happening in China or Russia right now. Maybe it will be. I really don't know what's coming. Brother Bruce talked about this on a Wednesday night. If you were here, he, he broached this topic. I do not know what's coming. I, I do not doubt in my mind for one second that there is coming a day in this country when there are verses in the Bible that we, are getting in, we will get in trouble for preaching because it is not what the world wants to hear and it is not this, this new tolerant world that we have entered into that's not really tolerance at all but its own form of bondage but there is, a, there is going to come a day where I think Christian churches are going to be forced to preach certain messages and we're going to find out who lives for Christ who is really a reflection of Jesus Christ when that day comes because we could compromise the church could compromise oh yeah we'll make peace with the government we'll make peace with the culture we'll make peace with Hollywood but I am going to live for Jesus Christ and that may mean I am persecuted I really don't know what is coming, but we are told to expect persecution. Our text this morning points out several ways that persecution comes. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all manners of evil against you on account of me. It does not mean that the mistreatment will be constant. I don't think, at least that's not the way I interpret it. I don't think even Jesus was constantly harassed. But that oppression will come to those who are righteous Insults. Think about this. This could be uh, verbal to our face. Um, this could be actions that people do to us. It means to revile, reproach, or complain against. The literal translation is to cast in one's teeth. I have like this image of somebody punching you right in the teeth. It may range from being looked down upon by people who think we are foolish to those who hate us deeply. 
But insults can certainly be stronger than all that. Consider the insults that were hurled at the Apostle Paul. Some looked down on his physical appearance and said he couldn't speak well. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that. In, in Philippians, Paul even says that there were those preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, thinking to cause me distress. People were preaching the gospel to distress Paul. Consider what happened to Jesus after he was arrested and put on trial. He was spat upon. He was hit. He was taunted. Prophesy. They, 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 would, they would slap him when he couldn't see, and they'd say, prophesy. Tell us who it was that just slapped you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They would hit him in the face. If we live righteously in the world, then the world is going to consider us a fool, and it will treat us as fools. You'll be called names, you'll be taunted, you'll be mocked, and you'll be the butt of jokes. You will have insults cast against you. There will be persecution, I'm telling you. It does not always mean death, but it may well end up there. When Jesus called upon his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, they knew exactly what he meant. What do you think you do with a cross? Do you just carry it around? Jesus died on his cross, and he said for us to take up our cross and follow him and his disciples, those apostles of God, they did it. Tradition holds that all of the apostles died as martyrs, except for John, who was exiled to Patmos, where he died. James was executed by Herod. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Paul had his head cut off, and others died after them. Polycarp was an early Christian preacher, and he was burned alive in the Roman arena. He was burned in the Colosseum, and his last statement was this. He said, 86 years I have served Jesus Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? Because all he had to do to get out of being burned alive was deny Jesus Christ. And he said, how can I blaspheme my king? The early Christians were often martyrs dying in the arenas as a, sp a sport for the ungodly who were watching. They were killed by sword. They were killed by spear, by the gladiators. They were eaten alive by lions. Listen to this, guys. We, we can't fathom this because Christianity has been the dominant religion in the United States of America for so long. We have lived, we have lived at the top of the food chain in so many ways. We have not seen what persecution could look like. But children were wrapped in sheepskins and then wild dogs were turned loose on them. Many were covered alive in tar and set up on stakes and lit to light up Nero's gardens. The same thing continues today in different places around the world. There are places, Christian scholars, they say that in the 20th century, more Christians died as martyrs than in the previous 1900 years. In the, in the 1900s, more people died for Christ than in the preceding 1900 years. How many believers have died at the hands of atheistic communism? How many have died at the hands of totalitarian despots? How many have died at those entrapped in the hands of other religions? Paganism. I've heard stories of our missionaries in Africa. It, it just the, the, They would come to their house in the middle of the night. They would abduct them. They'd take the, the preacher and leave the family. And next thing you know, he was dead. I've heard these stories taught by our missionaries. For, this was going on in our time. Islam, Hinduism, there have been Christians slaughtered by other religions. We're not all perfect either. Christians have killed in the name of Christ also. Those weren't really Christians, were they? 
Other persecution may not be physical, but it's just as real. Think about those who stand for traditional marriage today. Think about those who stand for the proposition that there are only two genders. Think about how they're treated today. You have freedom of speech until you start to talk about righteousness, then you're censored. Christians in the media and academia and corporate America have lost their jobs or found themselves unpromotable because of their faith. Consider also closer to home cases. Many of us, we may have experienced people that we know or, or ourselves have received ostracism from coworkers or friends and neighbors because we would not participate in a lifestyle, a dirty joke, a crude behavior, gossip, immoral behavior. We've not, we've not participated in those things and we've been kept out. Persecution can also come in the form of slander. That's when you say an evil thing, accusing a person falsely. I could spend a lot of time telling you how the media slanders Christians, but I think you're well aware of how that happens. We're also aware of how others will lie behind our backs to get themselves ahead. How even righteous things that we do can be distorted and perverted into horrible lies, but the same has occurred from the beginning. The early Christians, they were accused of burning down Rome and it was a pretext to begin horrible, horrible persecution against them. Sometimes slander just is, seems like a case of misunderstanding, but other times it is obvious and a malicious twisting of the truth. Jesus, do you know that in, in Matthew 11 and 19, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard? Did y'all know that? I guess I had heard that somewhere, but I had forgotten about it, and I was researching this, and, and I was like, that's a good... Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton. Yet in the midst of all of this, all the persecution around the world, in the midst of all of it, we are to rejoice. How? How are we to rejoice? How can we rejoice in the midst of persecution? First, we must remember what our reward is. See, I've painted you a dark, dark world. I've painted you a horrible, a horrible future for you. I've painted a terrible picture. But we gain the kingdom of heaven. We gain a kingdom. Notice here that the Beatitudes start and end with the same blessing. The very first Beatitude and the last Beatitude. You gain the kingdom of heaven. That's, I, there's no mistake there. I, I don't find that a coincidence or anything. That, that was intentional. We are persecuted because we demonstrate all of the characteristics of true righteousness. We're poor in spirit. We're mournful over our own sin. We are meek. That means we recognize that we are God-controlled and not self-controlled. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then we are merciful towards others, even the ones that mistreat us. We become pure in heart. We become peacemakers like we talked about last week. And then we know that persecution will come. As we have said all along, these characteristics can all, all the things that we've talked about in the Beatitudes, these characteristics can only be true, true of those in whom the Holy Spirit has come in and given us a new heart. That's the truly saved Christians. That's, that's people who are dedicated and determined to live for Jesus Christ. And we can't do it ourselves. Jesus has to come in. The Holy Spirit literally comes in and takes our old heart and gives us a new one. And as we become more like Jesus, the world is going to react to us in the same way it reacted to him. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 and 20. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's amazing how many times Jesus and Paul and the rest of the apostles bring up persecution. They didn't just mention it once and leave it to die. They mention it over and over again. 
It is also a joy to know that in the midst of the turmoil that comes with persecution, I've got a great reward in heaven. We're laying up gold and silver and precious stones, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. We're laying up things that will bring glory to God. And as a result, our life will count for eternity. We are fulfilling the purpose of our existence when we live righteously. Consider also that our persecution identifies us with the great prophets and people of the past. All of the great prophets suffered persecution. Hebrews 11 is that roll call. We know about that. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the children of Israel than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking towards his reward. He was willing. He was a prince of Egypt. He could have been the next Pharaoh, but he wanted to live for God. And he rejected all of Egypt's wealth. And he led the people of Israel out knowing there was going to be scorn. <coughs> scorn that was going to be poured upon him. In verses 36 and 38, I, this is just such a, such a powerful... When you've got time, read Hebrews 11, 36 through 38. The people that have lived for God, the, the great heroes of the past, they are described as having experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sown, they were stoned, they were sawn into, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. The world is not worthy of those people of faith. But we as believers, we are to act as though we are worthy of them. To be persecuted verifies that we belong to the line of the righteous. That is why there is a cause for rejoicing when, like Jesus described, an exceeding joy, literally a skip and a jump with excitement of joy when we are persecuted. The joy is not that you are being persecuted. That may be a cause for grief, both personally and in mourning over the sin of the persecutor. But it is a source of joy to know that you are walking in righteousness. That's the joy. See, I'm persecuted. I don't like the persecution. I don't have to like the persecution. I can even dislike the persecution. But I rejoice because I know that because I'm being persecuted for his namesake, I am walking in his way. That's the proof to me that I'm walking in his way. Our assurance of salvation does not come from some decision we made in the past. That would be trust in a decision, and our salvation comes in Jesus Christ alone. Assurance of salvation comes from three sources. The promise of God's Word, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and a changed life. That's my proof that I have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. No works involved, but that's the proof that I need to follow in my life. Our assurance that the decision we made in the past and that that prayer that we prayed at this altar was true results in a life of righteousness. And true righteousness is going to result in persecution. The truly righteous have the characteristics described in the Beatitudes. He or she is unlike the world. They seek to live a life controlled and dominated by Jesus Christ. Their focus is on things eternal, heaven and earth to come not on this world which is passing away. So it is that when persecution comes because of our righteousness, we rejoice exceedingly. Certainly persecution will not be easy. I, I, don't, I don't anticipate it will be, and I wouldn't lie to you and tell you otherwise. But if we have the right perspective, 
we can endure it with joy. When persecution comes because we are living for Jesus Christ, it is a source of joy in my life because I am living a life in accordance with Him. I'm living in His way. I'm living in His will. I'm protected by Him. Even in the middle of persecution, I am protected. I want to read a lengthy passage of Scripture because I really didn't even need to preach. I just could have put this on the board. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 Uh, 7 through uh, chapter 5 and verse 4 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in ourselves the body of the dying Christ Jesus. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. We're constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Ah, This is so powerful. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written... I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart. But although our outer man is decaying, this body is dying, It always is dying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. They can do what they want to this outer man, but this inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. The affliction down here is producing glory up there. Far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Every, that pew is going to pass away. This flesh is going to pass away. Everything that you physically can see and look at is going to pass away. It will not last. But the things which are not seen are eternal. This soul is eternal. The soul of everybody that you ever encounter, that you walk up to, even the ones who persecute you, even the ones who despitefully use you, even the ones that talk about you, even the ones that hate you, their soul is eternal too. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, this, if this body is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For indeed, in this house we groan, this body we groan, in this flesh we groan. Longing to be clothed clothed with our dwelling from the heavens. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent down here, while we're down here, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed. There's something coming that's better but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
That's a powerful passage of Scripture. That is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want any of you to be persecuted. But this passage that we have been into today, the last of the Beatitudes, from Jesus' own mouth, tell us it will happen. It will come. It's not an, an if, but it is a when. And the only way I will be able to rejoice when it comes is if I am living a life of righteousness. Take these past few messages, these past, I'm sorry, these past few months of messages, take them to heart. Let the Beatitudes become a template for your prayer life. Let them become a template for your worship life. Let them become a template for how you act when you're outside the walls of this building. Let these Beatitudes just become a template for your life and for the expression of your faith. Let us put aside the world and put on Jesus. This flesh, this tent, this tent that I'm living in down here, it is not eternal. But what is to come, that is eternal. That's what I'm living for. We are about to sing a song. Ain't Donna, are we singing the one we talked about? We are about to sing a song that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Now look, we've sung this song a hundred million times before. I bet everybody in this room has sung it many, many times. But I want you to sing it today as though you mean it. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Is that what you want for your life? Do you just want to be kind of associated with Jesus or do you want to follow him? Do you want to live for him with everything you've got? Because persecution is coming. And the only way that we will endure it is if we are truly living for Jesus. If we have decided to follow Jesus, the world behind me, the cross before me, I have decided to follow Jesus.